Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from Psalm 2. You can follow along in your worship bulletin or on the screen. This is Psalm 2, starting at verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nathan. Morning, Lake Baldwin Church. Well, this past May, something happened that was very significant in the life of people living in the United Kingdom. Maybe not significant for us, but for them it was. Uh, you may know I'm referring to the coronation of King Charles III. Now, if Charles is able to live to the ripe old age as his mother, uh, he's only going to get to reign a mere 21 years on the throne. Not very much time compared to his mom. Uh, you may know that uh, Queen Elizabeth, she is one of the longest reigning monarchs uh, in all of history for, for someone who has reigned over a sovereign state. She is number two on the list. Number one is King Louis XIV of France. He, she, he beats her by roughly one year, 72 years. Amazing. You know, when you look at the lives of Queen Elizabeth and you look at the life of uh, King Louis, you'll find that Queen Elizabeth was a defender of the faith. Uh, she was for the Lord. She talked about Christ and his example. But when you look at King Louis XIV, sadly, he was not a defender of the faith. He was a persecutor of the Protestant church. And you may know through uh, history that he persecuted uh, the French Huguenots. And if you're American this morning, you would say Huguenots. But the French call them the Huguenots. Uh, opposed to God. Opposed to Christianity. In fact, if you survey the rulers of the earth throughout human history, sadly, the vast majority of them, at best, they were ignorant of God, but at worst, they were opposed to God. And you even find that in the biblical record. When you look at the kings of Israel, when you look at the kings of Judah, the vast majority of them opposed God. And that's where Psalm 2 starts. 
Psalm 2 starts with the kings of the earth, and even more than just the kings and rulers of the earth. In fact, all peoples in opposition to God, rejecting God, rebelling against God. And we're going to look at that rebellion. But the psalm doesn't leave us there. We see how God responds. And God responds in this way. He responds in revelation and in reign of his king. And then the psalm closes with the only reasonable response to God. And that is a response of repentance and refuge. That's what we're going to look at this morning. You know, this is the season of Advent. Our theme for the the season is the coming king, the coming king. And for God's people, we can take comfort because God's answer to a world that is in chaos, to a world that is falling apart and broken, his answer is Jesus, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Let's look at that opening scene of rejection and rebellion. I want to look first at verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Well, this psalm opens up with a scene of chaos, a scene of turmoil, a scene of rejection and rebellion. It's the planning of a coup. It's the planning of a rebellion. And I'm sure you have seen this scene played over and over again. I think of a lot of my favorite movies like The Italian Job or the Mission Impossible series or the Fast and Furious series. You always have this scene of the team getting together and they're planning, they're plotting, they're scheming to overthrow their enemy or accomplish some mission. And who is this mission here against in the psalm? It's against the Lord, the Lord God, and it's against his anointed. Now, those who were anointed in Scripture are the prophets, the priests, and the kings. They were anointed to show God's choosing of them, his favor upon them. And they were anointed symbolizing the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit poured out upon them with power with favor, to fulfill their office and to fulfill their task. And in our context this morning, David himself and even future kings of Israel, if they read this, they could say this of themselves, that we are the Lord's anointed. And yes, the kings of the earth have taken their stand against us. But as we look further into this psalm, we're going to see that the psalm is prophetic. The psalm is talking about a greater David The psalm is talking about a coming king. And if we turn to Acts chapter 4 in the New Testament, we're going to see that the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2 finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes Psalm 2. And then in verse 27. Here is the interpretation. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. 
There's a, there's a lot of things I want you to notice about this. I want you to notice that the writer in the New Testament, Luke, he is attributing Psalm 2 to David. Even though we don't have the superscription in the scriptures, David is the human writer of the psalm. But beyond that, God is the author behind Psalm 2, God the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament is looking back and providing the interpretation for the Old Testament. And this is important for us, by example, to, to understand. That when we come to the Bible and we look at the Old Testament, we, all sh we always should be looking to the New Testament to see its interpretation. The New Testament reveals the Old Testament. That's what we have here in Acts chapter 4. And what, what the writer is saying is that the nations are the Gentiles. What the writer is saying, that the kings who are arrayed against the Lord are Pontius Pilate, are Herod. What the writer is saying is that the peoples who are arrayed against the Lord are the people of Israel. They are arrayed against Jesus. Jesus is the Lord's anointed. That word in the Hebrew is Messiah. And you may hear in it the English word Messiah. That word in the Greek would be Christos. And, and there you would hear the English word for Christ. Yahweh's anointed is Jesus himself. And why is it that the nations are in an uproar? Why is it that the kings are in an uproar? Why is it even God's people are in an uproar against the Lord? Well, we find in verse 3 the answer to this. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Bonds and cords are used to do what? Bind us and limit our freedom. They restrict us. And to submit to God is to think that God, the king, is going to limit and restrict our freedom. The kings of the earth want nothing to do with another king on top of them. They want independence. They want autonomy. They want self-rule. They want self-determination. And it sounds a little bit like the American way. It sounds a little bit like themes we would find in the Declaration of Independence. But here's how it is different. It's independence from God himself. It's autonomy from God himself. It's determining your own destiny apart from God himself. It's this belief deep down that somehow God limits our freedom. You may be here this morning and you feel that yourself. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, whether you're following Christ or not, you may feel that, that God as king, he restricts our freedom. You may be here this morning and your heart is closed off to God. Maybe this describes you, that you are angry at God. You are raging against him. You are plotting against him. You want rule apart from him. You want autonomy. You want to, to own your own life apart from God. If that describes you this morning, I, I hope and pray that you would stick with me through the end of the psalm and hear God's response to you. Hear God's 
invitation of grace towards you. But even if you are a follower of Christ this morning, I want you to see that at at some level, every one of us, we are in rebellion against the Lord's anointed. We have rejected him. Every time we go after something else other than Jesus to satisfy us, we are rejecting the Lord's anointed. All sin is unbelief. All sin is unbelief in the promises of God. We, we somehow don't believe that he is for us. That God is not only good, but he is good to us. And it's easy for us to come to Psalm 2 and say, yes, the world outside is a mess. The world is in opposition to the Lord and his anointed. But at some level, every one of us here this morning, deep in our heart, we resist the grace and the goodness of Jesus. Let's look now at God's response to this rejection and rebellion in verses four through nine. But I want to first unpack Verses four through six, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. How does God respond? I want you to see the posture of God. God is in heaven and he's doing what? He is sitting on the throne room in heaven. He's not jumping up to action, he's sitting in heaven and he does what? He laughs. The world is in chaos, the world is raging, the world is in turmoil, and the Lord is calmly in heaven, unmoved, and he laughs. Why does he laugh? Why does he mock them? Why does he ridicule them? Well, it would be like me trying to pick a fight with Mike Tyson or The Rock, right? No match at all. They would simply laugh at me. They would simply laugh. And for those of you who know Mr. T, he would say, I pity the fool because it would be foolish for me to attempt to pick a fight to oppose any one of these guys. God responds with mocking and ridicule because it is ridiculous for any king of the earth to oppose the great king in heaven. He responds by laughing, but he also responds by speaking. The great king in heaven doesn't need to jump. He doesn't have to get off his throne. He simply speaks because his word is power. And in speaking, he reveals more about his king and his choice. And guess what? It's not any of the kings of the earth, not the greatest king ever of this earth. It is one who he sets in Zion. Zion is the place of God's presence for God's people. In the Old Testament, Zion was the location of the temple of God. In that temple was the ark a simple piece of furniture looking like a footstool. And I want you to grab hold of this this scene, this picture that God is the great king sitting in heaven, his feet extending all the way to earth 
and his presence right there on earth with, with his feet on the footstool of the ark. Heaven reigning from earth. That's where he will set his king. And then surprisingly, as the psalm continues, we're going to hear his chosen king speak, his anointed one. In verses 7 through 9, this is what the, this is what the anointed one is going to say. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And now we know even more about the anointed one. He is someone who is dear to the king. He is someone who's in a special relationship with the king. He is the king's son. And as son, he is the rightful heir to everything. He's the heir to all the earth. He's the heir to all the nations. He's the heir to all peoples, to all lands. They are his. And Jesus here himself is giving the unbreakable command, the unbreakable decree of the great king saying, I am the heir. It all belongs to me. He is not only the heir, but he has the authority and he has the power to back it all up. Look at verse 9. This to me is a terrifying verse. This to me is a sobering verse. That rod of iron is a warning for us. It denotes the, the severity, the force at the disposal of this king. He has the power. He has the capability to take hold of his kingdom. In this advent, that word means arrival or coming, and we're celebrating the coming king. Yes, the one who came as a baby in a manger of low position in humility, but we also look forward to that second advent when he will come again with power, with force, with majesty and might. And at that time, that lowly shepherd's staff will be replaced with a rod of iron. And King Jesus will take his kingdom by force if necessary. Verse 9 speaks of utter destruction and conquering of the kingdom. Jesus is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And he is not going to be denied his kingdom for the believer this morning, this should be of great comfort, of great consolation. We live in a world of chaos. We live in a world of power grab grabbing. And God's answer to a world in chaos, in a world that is falling apart, is Jesus, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. One of my favorite movies is the Avengers, the Marvel series, and sadly it has gotten worse. The more movies they put out, it gets worse and worse, right? But rewind in your mind to one of those original Avengers movies. One of my favorite scenes is when Tony Stark, Iron Man, the good guy, 
is confronted with Loki, the bad guy. And Loki says, I have, I have an army. He's referring to the Chitari, right? The alien invaders who are going to rebel and take over planet Earth. This is the opposition against the good guys. And what is, what is Iron Man's answer? Loki says, I have an army. Iron Man says, we have a Hulk. We have a Hulk. His answer is a person. It's Bruce Banner. It's the Hulk. It's not a scheme. It's not a strategy. For God's people living in this world of chaos and brokenness, we can take comfort because God's answer to that is Jesus, a person, not a strategy, not a scheme, but a king. And he has installed his king in Zion. And when we look forward into the New Testament, we see the fullness of Zion is not a place, but a people. The church, believers, he has installed his kingdom in our hearts. The king is here and he is living with us. We are his kingdom. And it's so easy for us today in our world to get spun up to get depressed, to get discouraged. We look out and we see war. We see Ukraine. We see the Middle East. We see the political climate of yet again more power grabbing. It's easy for us to get caught up in rage. It's easy for us to not respond well. Have we forgotten who our heavenly father is? He is the great king who is sitting in heaven. He is calm. He is unmoved. And he has installed his king, King Jesus. And everything is his. We can be calm. We can be unmoved. Because King Jesus reigns. Let's look now at the only reasonable response, and that is one of repentance and refuge in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I want you to see the warning here in Scripture this morning. If you find yourself this morning opposed to God, if your heart is closed off, if you are hard towards God this morning, I want you to hear the warning in Scripture. The King is coming. The King is coming. And the stakes couldn't be higher for you. What's at stake is your utter destruction. Will you perish in the way? Will you perish before his wrath when he comes again? Verse 9 is ringing in my ears that he would break you with a rod of iron, that he would smash you to pieces like a potter's vessel. Let me urge you. In love and in trembling, don't close your ears to this king. One day, 
every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They will bow allegiance to this king. And so we see that it's not only warning, but it's a plea to be wise. It's an invitation to be wise. In other words, don't be a fool. Don't be unreasonable. Don't pick a fight with Mike Tyson. You're not going to win. But it's not an ultimatum. I love the fact that the psalm ends with an invitation of grace. There's so much grace here. It's grace that he would even warn the opposition. In all those movies, I don't think they warned the opposition. But God, the great king, warns. He invites, be wise. He offers joy in rejoicing. He offers a place of refuge. It's a message of grace. God is always inviting us back. God is always opening his arms, extending the invitation of grace. He will not shut you out, even if your heart is hard. Let me encourage you, give up your own self-rule. Give up your own autonomy. Let me ask you, how's it working out for you anyway? you've gone your own way, if you've sought independence from God and you think your way is a better way, how is it going for you anyway? And let me be pragmatic and encourage you, trade in your stress, trade in your anxiety of self-rule, trade in your discontent, trade in your depression of a rebellious heart for joy in being ruled by a gracious king. Because Jesus is not only a king who wants to rule over you, but he is a king who is radically for you. That phrase, kiss the son, actually it's not one of affection, though you may think it is. The kings in history, their subjects kissed them. Why? To show subjection, to show loyalty and submission, to show respect the psalmist is encouraging you, kiss the king. Come under the kingship of Jesus. Receive him. Receive both the humble, lowly baby king in a manger and the powerful, majestic king who will come on the clouds of heaven because he's a king who's gentle and lowly in heart. Hear this invitation from the king this morning from Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This king offers you rest. But he wants you to come under his submission. That yoke, as you know, was used to, to put on animals to control them, 
to guide them. King Jesus is saying, come under my yoke. Let me guide you. Let me lead you. Let me control you. Let me rule you. And guess what? It's going to be easy. It's going to be light because I'm gentle and I'm lowly. You know, when I was working in the corporate world, I went through a very rough season. We were, we, I remember we were going through an acquisition, and if you've ever gone through mergers and acquisitions, it's a horrible time. And it got the best of me. Because there was reorgs, right? New bosses. Bosses being moved aside. And for me, I began to worry. I began to fear that I was going to lose control of my organization. I was going to lose power. I was going to lose influence. I would get reorged out of the way. And I had put upon myself all of the yokes of this world. Power. Position. Prestige. Even greed. And it didn't work out so well for me. What did it lead to? It led to overwork, overwhelming stress, lack of sleep, anxiety. The yokes that this world will offer you will only weigh you down. Jesus offers you another way. He offers you rest. You will never find true rest until you find it in Jesus. He's a king that not only wants to rule over you, but he is radically for you. And if this Jesus becomes your king, you will find not only rest, you will find refuge in him. Look at verse 12. We'll close with this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's every single one of us here this morning whether you follow Jesus all your life or you've yet to follow him, it's an invitation for you to find refuge in Jesus. Jesus, who is a king who is gentle and lowly towards his people, but he's fiercely protective towards any threat towards his flock. Come to Jesus and find refuge in him. He is a king who has installed his kingdom in his people, and he surrounds his people not with cords of restriction, but cords of compassion and bonds of love. This is a king who himself would be bound. This is a king who himself would be smashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is a king who would face utter destruction. And why would he do it? He would do it for you. He would do it for me. And so I implore you this morning, come to King Jesus and find refuge for your weary soul. Would you pray with me? No refuge for our weary soul. You are king of heaven and earth. One day, though not now, though the world is in turmoil and raging, one day all of heaven and earth will recognize you are the king of all kings. You are the Lord of all lords. And you are a king who is gracious. You are a king who is lowly. 
You are the king who gave his life for his people. And you're the king we worship this morning. We pray in his name. Amen.